Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 202, recorded September 30th, 2020. I'm Brian Aachen. And I'm Michael Kennedy. Yeah. And this uh, episode is brought to you by Datadog. So thanks, Datadog. Yeah. Thank you, Datadog. It's good to have you back, it's Brian. good to be back. We missed you. Yeah. I had a little bit of a heart yeah. scare, but I'm all better now. So that's good to hear. We're recording this September 30th, but by the time this comes out, we might have a new Python. So did you know that? I did not know that, but I'm very excited that you're covering that first. Yeah. So usually there's about a week delay and that's about when Python 3.9 should be Yeah. Know, right? So Python 3.9, there is a, the RC2 or release candidate 2 was released September 17th. The final is scheduled for release October 5th. Of course, you know, so it's software, so things can come up. But we're looking forward to starting using 3.9 right away. We're linking to the changelog. There's a lot of different lists for what is in 3.9, but I wanted to highlight a few features that I pulled out from the changelog. The first couple I think I'm, I'm most excited about, there's a dictionary merge and a update operator. So... The merge operator is just the bar, so you can have two dictionaries and do a bar to merge them together, and the bar equal for the update. The update kind of means, it doesn't mean append, it means like, if there's new stuff, add it to the other, other dictionary, but if there's changes, change it. So I think this is just, when I first read about this, I thought, why don't we already have this? This just seems obvious. So I'm glad to have a merge operator. Yeah, I thought this... Uh there's already a way to accomplish this with the curly bracket star star dictionary star star dictionary star star dictionary <laughs> which has the same effect it's a little bit longer i think this is for consistency with other container objects like sets that have a pipe okay behavior so it's like oh you can just do it to dictionaries yeah that's, i think it's nice i had to read a little bit the next one is a uh, remove prefix and remove suffix has been added to strings and also added to bytes byte array and collections user string which is uh, cool. I'm most excited about this one. Are you? Yeah. Because this, actually, when you look at like the workarounds to do something, the, the workarounds are ugly. If you just want to, it's just, I have like this string that might be at the beginning of my, of another string. I want to remove it. Like if um, just this prepended stuff that happens all the time. So like spaces or things like that. So what would you use it for? Well, yeah, the same thing. There's a lot of times there's like, oh, there's this string that always starts at the beginning of this line and I just don't want it. Right, but the trim, trim, start, trim, end, trim, if you give it characters, it doesn't mean remove that string. It means remove, like take each one of those characters and remove all of them until you don't run into any more of those characters. And so if one of the characters of your string happens to be the first character of the stuff that's left, it'll also get ripped. Yeah, you just want a specific string to get removed, a set of strings. Right, if I'm like, I want this substring off the front... <laughs> You know, if it exists, but not if it doesn't, right? You don't have to do the test. And anyway, it's just, it cleans it up and makes it a little more predictable. Okay. Yeah. Next thing is uh, type annotations have a change that you can now use the built in collection types, such as list and dict, as generic types instead of having to import typing or Im from typing import capital list or capital dict. I'm really excited about this. Wait. I did get back. I'm more excited about this than remove. <laughs> yes, yeah, because I'm always annoyed when I have to like because I'm I st I'm starting to use type hinting for a you know for interfaces, and you don't need to import anything to do that except for if you have a list or a dictionary or so set or something like that. And now you don't have to do that anymore, and I'm very happy. I'm still waiting for the optional operator, the question mark or something, rather than 
capital O optional. Uh, yeah, that'd be good. Should add that. Yeah. We've talked about the peg parser before, but the three nine is where the, the new peg parser comes in. I don't know if it'll affect anybody, but it's neat. Yeah, it's supposed to make extending the language with more complicated behaviors and more nuanced syntax easier. But it won't affect you or me probably writing code day to day. I'm not gonna touch that thing. Yeah, I'm not. I was intrigued by this. Uh, any valid expression can now be used as a decorator. This is PEP614. I haven't quite wrapped my head around it, but um, I think this will change the way we use decorators. But I think we need a few tutorials to be written to for people to figure out how to use this. So maybe we should just make decorators like a Lambda expression? Because I, I know you have later in the show some really cool uses of Lambda expressions. So we can come oh back to gosh. that. Oh my gosh. A huge Lambda expression could be a decorator. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Or really bad. Anyway, the other thing, last thing I wanted to mention, um, uh, Zone Info is a new module that comes in, which is cool. It has IANA time zone databases support. That's part of the standard library now. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff too. So we're going to link to the change log and people should check that out. Yeah, very cool. Exciting. We're going to have a new Python and Python comes faster now. It does. I think they changed the release cycle to 12 months. Oh yeah. It's a, so it's a year month. 310 or whatever the next thing is should be out yeah, soon. Yeah, we'll just put it on our calendar. First week in October, we should expect a new Python. That's right. What happens in October? Halloween and yeah. Python. And black. <laughs> black cats. Black. Yeah, because you want to go out into your costumes and your scary costumes at night when it's dark. It's no fun to do Halloween in the day because it looks yeah. fake. Or maybe you just have a Jupyter Notebook and you're a fan of black, but you would like to format yeah. it. <laughs> so Mary Hong sent over a cool recommendation based on some stuff we had over on Talk Python. So in Talk Python, I did a auto racing episode with Kane Replicle, and his pick for a PyPI package recommendation was Black Cell Magic, which I think we covered on the show yep. as well, I'm pretty sure. She said, you should check out Jupiter Black. And Jupiter Black is kind of like the same thing, but instead of having to type into the cells, you can just press it gives you a toolbar button you can press and off it goes. So that looks really cool. It gives you a toolbar button and a couple of hotkey shortcuts, keyboard shortcuts to format single cells and format all the cells. Okay, that was going to be my question. Can you just have it do the whole the whole shebang at once? Exactly. And that's what was, it also run, you can also just run, instead of running black in your CI, you can run jblack or as a pre-commit hook or something like that. Okay. So I believe with the one, the black cell magic that I called, uh, talked about previously, you had to like type it into the notebook and it would, it would do it, which is cool, but this is more of a, and I talked about there being an extension that would kind of do it for the whole notebook, but it was, it had a huge message like this is no longer supported. So like, I'm not so sure. So this gives you both a CLI and hotkeys for the whole, for the whole notebook, which it seems cool. Yeah, it does seem neat. Definitely need to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Quick and simple. But to me, that's one of the huge shortcomings of Jupiter on multiple levels. I think the auto formatting, like Jupiter should format that code as I type. I shouldn't have to like run command line things against it to get formatted code. Like, you know, Visual Studio Code, PyCharm, it gives you that support as you go. You're not like spacing around, tapping around. The other I really wish Jupyter did better was autocomplete. Yeah. Yet, yes, if, if you hit dot, nothing happens. But if you hit tab, it will come up. And I think there's a lot of, you know, compare that to the other modern editors. There's a lot of room to make improvements on those areas. But, you know, this, at least having a keyboard shortcut, like reformat document, you know, 
command shift B or whatever, or control shift B, that seems really like a good start. Do you know if uh, Jupyter Lab has any different support or is it? I don't think so. I think Jupyter Lab just has more other UI elements. Like you have a ability to get to the terminal and do other stuff. It's not just the notebook, but I don't think in the fundamental editor experience changed. I could be wrong. I don't compare them that often, but I don't well, think we so. Could, I mean, if they get to that point, it wouldn't be an IDE. It would be a JDE, right? Jupiter development. <laughs> That's right, a JD. <laughs> exactly. Good one. All right. Another cool thing is Datadog. This episode of Python Bytes is brought to you by Datadog. Let me ask you a question. Do you have an app in production that is slower than you like? Is its performance all over the place? Sometimes fast, sometimes slow. Now here's an important question. Do you know why? With Datadog, you will. You can troubleshoot your app's performance with Datadog's end-to-end tracing. Use the detailed flame graphs to identify bottlenecks and latency in that finicky app of yours. Be the hero that got the app back on track for your company. Get started today with a free trial at pythonbytes.fm slash datadog. Awesome. Thank you, datadog. You know, it's not awesome. DDoS. <laughs> Denial, <laughs> Denial of service against your web app. Yeah. So this is a, the next couple of things I've got are listener suggestions. And unfortunately, since I've kind of been out of commission for a week, I forgot who suggested this. So my apologies to the listener who brought this to their attention. There's an article written by Jacob Kaplan Moss called Understanding and Preventing Denial of Service on Web Applications. I saw it, but I kind of dismissed it right away because I thought it was just another like uh, about all languages. But this one is focused on Python and has some specifics on Django. So I think it's it starts off with a good discussion of what denial of service is and then sort of kind of what to do about it and how to prevent it from happening and fix things on your with your application. But it kind of it led me down a rabbit hole, and I kind of enjoyed it. Anyway, there's one example that it lists as a, a hadn't, I think I've heard of, I don't remember if we've talked about it on the show, which is called a redos, which is a regular expression denial of service. We talked about this, do you know? I don't think okay. so. But yeah, there's certain types of like computationally expensive things <laughs> that are not going to match or useless or whatever you can send over to regular expressions that'll cause all sorts of and, trouble. And uh, what's uh, interesting is so the, it says redos bugs occur when certain types of strings can cause improperly crafted regular expressions to form extremely perform poorly. And I'm talking like really poorly. What's interesting is they're not even complicated regular expressions. They're just like, for instance, a match a set containing like a, a char- one or more characters or zero or more characters followed by another zero or more characters followed by a B or something like that. And there's like a little graphic on one of the links on this uh, page that shows how slow this is. It, it has to match all these different things and it's, it's bad. Anyway, some languages have stuff put in place to uh, try to thwart this sort of a thing, but Python does not. But we have a solution. So this article links to another article called Finding Python Redos Bugs at Scale Using DLint, which I was like, DLint? What's that? So I went and looked there. DLint is a uh, Flake 8 plugin. So you can uh, check for denial of service vulnerabilities when you're checking everything else with Flake. Oh, that's interesting. I'd never never heard of that one. Yeah. So this, um, I was thinking it's a, it's a security plugin. I sort of linter for Python. And I was thinking, uh, is there a difference between that and Bandit? And the authors of DLint were expecting that. So the first FAQ is, 
what about Bandit? So there's a discussion about what, whether or not to use Bandit. But the the uh, TLDR is it checks for different things than Bandit. So you can run both of them and they run perfectly fine on the same code base. Yeah, super cool. DDoS is no fun. Distributed DDoS, a whole lot less fun. <laughs> so having to deal with that, I've had to deal with that before and uh, managed to get ahead of it. But if there's thousands of computers trying to do bad stuff to your website all at the same time from different locations, it's not easy. You've had to do yeah, that with but, uh, for maybe Talk Python yeah. or something for Talk Python training. Yeah, Lame. yeah. People, thousands of computers were trying to like do all sorts of stuff at the same time. So even things like let's just block this IP address or let's put in checks that if this IP address does five bad actions, we're going to block it for an hour or a day or permanently. None of that would work because it was so many different computers or devices or whatever. Anyway, not fun. It'll definitely get your attention. <laughs> Another thing that'll get your attention is pictures. We love yeah. pictures. So Shomik Chowdhury sent over a project that he's working on that I think is pretty cool. So I decided to cover it. It, it reminds me of something I'd worked on a long time ago. So he works with computer vision. And now this is not just about, I think this is useful beyond computer vision, which is why I'm covering it. But especially for computer vision. What he has to work with a lot is there's an image and you're trying to find all the people and maybe the bicycle or all the cars and the things the car needs to worry about if it's a self-driving car, right? Crosswalks, lights, whatever. And you want to put little pictures around it to say the computer vision and the ML algorithm said, this is a car. Where is that duck over there? That's not a car, right? <laughs> so you want to label them visually so often what they do is they put boxes around them and they put some text to say this is a person this is a car this is a duck and drawing those boxes with the picture with the like the label lined up just right or affixed to the edge of the box or sort of an arrow pointing down to it or things like that you know kind of tedious so he wrote a thing called bbox visualizer which lets you just say here's a image file like a png and here is the coordinates of this box and the label I want you to put on it, and boom, it draws like a, a nice fancy little box around the object that you talk about and puts a, a well-oriented label on it. So if you're doing any sort of I don't know, science stuff or image analysis where you want to put, like, here's what the computer thought is over here, and here's what we're calling it, you know, for all sorts of analysis, this is a handy little library. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah. You know, not everyone's going to need it. You don't need it for like a fancy web app or whatever but i think if you're trying to do this kind of work here's a super simple like two or three lines of code put a nice bunch of bounding boxes on top of things and pictures with nice labels that seems cool yeah i can also see like lots of different um like student projects where they're using working with mm-hmm. with images and uh, algorithms around it to be able to highlight yeah. a particular area that they're working on or something like that i think uses for sure i can see a lot of science that are doing it like we just we detected this as a star here, this is a star. Here's the name of the star or whatever. Yeah, and to just sort of lump all of the drawing the box stuff into a library. This is cool. I like it. Yeah, for sure. You've got uh, some nice fancy code examples, like taking your Pythonic code to the next level. Tell us about to the it. The next level. I was uh, debating as to what, I've got a like a devilish streak in me, I think, uh, as to why I'm bringing this in. <laughs> this also was a, another listener suggestion. My apologies to whoever sent it. I forget. I think it's a gist, GitHub gist, I'm pretty sure. And it's how to never use lambdas. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like just <laughs> chuckling even at the name. 
It starts off with a brief example showing how to how to rewrite a power function as a lambda. And, you know, anybody sort of familiar with lambdas, that's kind of a common use case is I've got a little like a single one or two uh, argument function that I need to pass in as an expression instead. And I can't pass in functions. So I pass in a lambda as it's kind of a bound function sort of thing. Right. I want to do a sort on a list and I want to sort by it's all users. I want to sort by their login date. So, you yeah. know, lambda u goes to u.login date or something super simple like that, right? That seems good. And anybody's scared of lambdas, if you look at the the initial example, that's a good simple thing. It's a they're not scary. They're just basically functions without names, but they have to be ex- expressions. So, first one no problem, but then he jumps right into some crazy code. I'm saying he, I don't know the wrote it but the crazy code right away is some code with import statements so how do you get around import statements will you somehow it's a using a dunder import and referencing the library you want to import as an expression passed as and the value of that passed as an argument to another lambda and these are nested lambdas so right off the bat first bad example is horrible (laughs) so don't do that this is almost like a decorator lambda <laughs> thing it's, it's yeah it's so weird starts off frightening and then shows an example of um a class definition and then how to lambify a class definition as <laughs> yeah so you can have a lambda expression be a, an entire class definition weird and then the last example which is my favorite is um an entire working flask application as a single lambda expression it's truly horrible stuff. You should not do this, but it's amusing to read about. Well, if your goal is to have fewer lines of code, like one line for an entire Flask application, that's impressive. I think it has two ra- Yeah, it has two routes, not just one. <laughs> impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> cool. Some of the sometimes of these like let's see these ideas taken to extreme are, are pretty interesting, and definitely that's the lambda equivalent. Now, there. one good use case of this, I think, maybe I might get struck by lightning by suggesting this. But if you're in, uh, if you got a CS student and you're doing really good, you've got like 110% in the class, maybe turn in a homework assignment that's just entirely Lambda expressions. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're just feeling really uh, mischievous <laughs> and you get some homework assignment you're super frustrated with, you're like, you know what? You're going to ask me to do something silly. And you said, long as it works, it counts. You're getting this back. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I'll probably get... Yeah, m- m- don't do that. That's no, mean. I'll probably get hate mail for that. So, sorry. What's not mean is contributing to open source, generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, that's not mean. That's nice. Yeah, so Alexander, one of the listeners, sent over an article or blog post by Vincent Wonderman. And it's called Uncommon Contributions, Making an Impact Without Touching the Core of a Library. I think this is one of the challenges paradoxes that you might run into is like you find these libraries that are very popular and you love them and you want to contribute to them like i love django so i want to contribute to it. i love flask i want to contribute to it i I love requests i want to contribute to it well guess what all of those things are highly polished and they have a lot of different use cases it's very hard to make changes to them because any little change will have a potentially huge effect on a lot of software right yeah and it's also just intimidating to touch the code for a large project too. So Yeah, exactly. So here are a bunch of ideas of things that are low danger, low stress. Probably a lot of people haven't taken advantage of them. I'll just go through a couple that Vincent 
works too. One of them is just providing better information. So he contributed to this project called Rasa. And I don't know what Rasa does. I forgot to check out. So it's, it has a CLI. Uh, you say Rasa. You can say Rasa dash dash version. And what it would say would be like 1.2.7. Okay, that seems totally legit. Like that feature is implemented, right? But then, and by the way, if you look at this article, if you open up the actual article, Brian, you'll see like each one of these has like a beautiful like XKCD style <laughs> picture talking about the story. So for like the info one, it says to debug this, like somebody says, hey, Ross is not working. Like, all right, well, what in order for me to debug this, you got to give me your Python version, your operating system, all the versions of the packages that you have. Like, are you running out of a virtual environment, et cetera, et cetera. So what he did was that, all right, when you say dash dash version, now you're going to get the version of Python, the path to your virtual environment, the version of related packages that Rasa depends upon, things like that. Nice. That's easy to do. That's not a challenging, you know, too difficult sort of implementation there. The next one is to set up a cron job to run tests checking the dependencies haven't affected a package. So I know you know about continuous integration, yeah. right? Check in, changes come, gonna run some, rerun your unit tests. That's great, right? But what happens if an underlying package has an underlying dependency? So the dependency of the dependency, is that a, a grand dependency? I don't know. <laughs> underlying dependency has a change that potentially makes something operate differently. What is gonna trigger your CI if you don't make any changes to your code there? Yeah. Right? So, he actually ran into this. Uh, Scikit-Lego is a package that Vincent works on. And he discovered that it, it wasn't working for some reason because Scikit-Learn introduced a minor but breaking change. So what he set up was a cron job with GitHub Actions to just run that once a day to say, hey, just in case something which we don't know about or you know, directly affects our repo, we still want to run those tests again just to make sure like, yeah, things are still good. Yeah. What do you think about good. that? That's good. And I also wonder... If the breaking change was that they changed what the version output produced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did think about that, actually. Like, if somewhere in there there's like a, a test, you know, someone has something that's just test that calling that on the yeah. command line. All right, spell check. Spell check is easy. Oh, yeah. There's always spelling yeah, errors like, in code. Always, yeah. Because a lot of times the symbols we use are not proper words. But I do really appreciate things like PyCharm that will they'll find misspellings inside of various things right like if you've got a function check login and i and inner switch it'll say login is misspelled yeah. but you know it's or, still or grammar checks grammar checking people's doc strings or comments yeah. in code and stuff like that exactly so there's a nice example in there about looking for a, a country i think where it was spain but spain was misspelled or you know as a doc string example so that's definitely something easy to do. Just run a spell checker on the doc string. One that I'm a real big proponent of is having better error messages. Oh, yeah. So it's so frustrating. Like just today, yesterday, I don't know, I was asleep. I, don't, I was not <laughs> sure exactly when I got this. But I got a, a message from student taking the Excel course says, hey, I tried to run cookie cutter because during the Excel course, we talk about setting up like a cookie cutter template that gets everyone started. It says, I tried to run cookie cutter and it didn't work. Here's the message. And it just says, 
something about the get clone that cookie cutter internally tries to use failed and it doesn't say anything about you know is git not installed did git what was the error from git like it just nope it failed right you know just like a random like this command failed like great so if there was a better error message like we tried to do that but you don't have permission to write where you tried to clone this thing to or git is not installed or something like that they could have gone oh i need to install git right? They would have been a much better off. So error messages. So they work on, um, Vincent works on something called Whatleys, and it allows for optional dependencies. Like it has some of its functionality, but you might have to pip install Whatleys bracket something else like here's TF hub, right? And in order to use a certain part of that, that depends on that optional dependency, you have to have that installed, but you don't have to install it to use the library, right? So you could run into this problem where you try to use a feature that doesn't have a dependency. Yeah. So instead of just going, none object has no attribute, whatever, <laughs> right? Or whatever's going to happen there, or no library, such and such. It's a, now the error is in order to use convert, convert language, you'll need to install pip install whatley's bracket tf hub see installation guide here and there's the url like that is a proper error message great telling people how to fix the error yeah yeah and you know it's just it's not that much work but just finding these problems like how many times does this appear on stack overflow rather than just like let them go find it on stack overflow and give the message so i recently added something like this to fluent check remember when we talked i think you brought this up talked about using raise from on an exception so you could say raise an exception but if you do that in a catch block, you get weird other issues, right? So by default, it would say something like, during the handling of the above exception, another exception occurred. And that sounds like one thing broke another. But like in this library, it's supposed to find errors and then report them to you. So if you use raise from, it'll say the above exception was a direct cause of the following exception which makes it sound like, okay, this is this is the source of yeah. the error, right? So just simple changes like that are really nice. Get better error messages. Failing unit tests. And I'm not talking about going around and finding projects that have failing unit tests, but rather, if you want to make a contribution or you rather you find a bug, rather than just submitting a bug to, on a GitHub issue tracker saying, this doesn't work, I tried it, and then having a long conversation about it, submit uh, along with it a failing uh, create a PR that has a failing unit test for that issue. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, right. Just go, look, it's supposed to do this. This fails. If you make this pass, I'm happy, right? And then they can fold that into the unit test suite and so on. And then also, uh, finally, there are some packages that might have names that result in import statements that are very confusing. So, for example, if you've got a package, and in the package there's a file.py, lowercase f, and within file.py there's a capital file, class that those would be totally reasonable what you can call the file is file pi create a class in it depending on how the package is set up you could set up with end up with something like from package import lowercase file and from package import uppercase file would both work but obviously don't mean the same thing so in that case they recommend like renaming certain files that are really meant to be used internally as a option yeah like in the example i don't even get what's different (laughs) i know i just stared at for a while as well (laughs) Okay. That's it for all those recommendations. But I think there's definitely some good ones in there. I like the error messages a lot. I like the failing unit tests as well. Th- those are my two faves. Yeah. I was just even thinking about all this stuff. The did it talk about documentation? Not about creating documentation. Okay. Just about the spell checking 
within documentation. Okay. Well, I, I would probably... Well, I guess that's doc strings. It's pretty limited. I'd docs, add documentation yeah. to this because um, yeah. projects always are lacking and, or sometimes behind. So the documentation might be great. Somebody was really gung-ho about it for a while. And then there's been improvements, but the, the new features just haven't made it into the documentation all over the place yet. Yeah, or tutorials. Yeah. There's no good u- tutorials showing like this part of code. Like there's might maybe a quick start, but then like the advanced hard stuff, there's no examples. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Huh. These are all good. Right, cool. What extra you got for well, us? Well, I just learned about this this morning, so I was going to just uh, not give a whole big thing, but just uh, let people know. I saw somebody on Twitter, of course, obviously being really bad about uh, referencing people, but sorry. A new thing, there's a, as of September, early in September, there was a, a collaboration between uh, the people in the Wonder Woman and the Smithsonian Learning Lab and NASA and Microsoft. So nice. there's a, uh, we're linking to an article that's learned to code with Wonder Woman, Smithsonian and NASA. And so there's a whole bunch of, the idea is that there's, um there's one, there's a lot of schools that don't offer computer science education and also with COVID and everything, some people have kind of, that's kind of dropped off uh, a little bit and people are focusing on core classes, which is probably fair. But uh, if you still want to have your kid learn programming, this might be a way to do it. And this is pretty cool and, and uh, looks pretty neat. There's um, some Wonder Woman adventure stuff and and NASA exploration and there's even a little bit of um, Minecraft in there and it looks really fun, and at least some of the tutorials are in Python. I haven't checked out to see if all of them are Python or not, but there's a lot of Python in there. Some of them use Blocky, but some of them, like uh, the Super Quiz from Wonder Woman, uses Python, and then some of the NASA ones, which Cecil actually called out the NASA Microsoft partner ones last time, but uh, not this the Wonder Woman one. So yeah, it's a mix, but very yeah, cool. It's neat. Plus, I got a yeah. lot. I can't wait to see see 1984. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, I have a quick thing as well. I'm going to be doing a presentation at IndiePie, so virtual online, obviously. Nice. When is this? This is coming up on October 13th. So there I'm going to be doing a Python memory deep dive, both like understanding some of the internals of Python memory as well as some optimizations that you can make to go faster and use less memory. So you all can sign up for that and, and check it out if cool. you like. Cool, a memory talk, and you forgot the date. That's funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just have yeah, another joke, another finish joke. it off. You know, I think we actually may have covered this a long time ago when it came out, but I'm not sure. But I don't remember okay. covering it. So it was suggested by Tim Jacobson, Kelsey Hightower's project, No Code. This is a hilarious <laughs> repo, but you kind of have to go look at it. So the... Tagline is, no code is the best way to write secure and reliable applications. Write nothing, deploy nowhere. And you highlighted that the style guide was good, so I went and looked at that. It says, no code style guide. All no code programs are the same, regardless of use case. Any code you write is a liability. So Yeah, and the style it's, this is beautiful. And the style guide, uh, guide talks about file extensions. It says, no code is, store, is not stored in files, but if you must, use the dot no. <laughs> file extension like example main.no there are linters built right into your posix based system <laughs> your linux systems so for example you can check by saying du-h space main.no and if it outputs zero then you have no code <laughs> <laughs> what is du do you know it's like a line count the number of uh, lines okay. of text in yeah. this file 
<laughs> and uh, then they have code reviews. The no-code community has adopted the following conventions for reviewing code changes. When the code changes contains no-code additions or modifications, LGTM looks good to me. When the code changes include code additions or modifications, C-I-A-L, code is a liability. <laughs> <laughs> they should be, that code change should be re- rejected immediately. And then the final kicker for me on this one is that there's 43,000 stars, yeah. 4,000 forks of it, which are funny. But the thing that made me laugh is there's 368 people watching for changes <laughs> in the no-code <laughs> repository where there's supposed to be no changes. <laughs> uh, that's funny. And there's three three point. Yeah. Oh, it adds Docker support as well. Three point two thousand <laughs> issues filed against it. Oh my God, there are. What are they here for? <laughs> uh, oh yeah, suspended Arctic Code Vault contributional reconstruction aviator chain generator keys. All right, no water in the water cooler is one of the issues. <laughs> this is, and then the contributing at the yeah. end of the readme it says contributing. You don't. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, uh, that's a good one, Tim and Kelsey. <laughs> nice job on that project. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot again for a lovely podcast. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. This is Brian Aachen, and on behalf of myself and Michael Kennedy, thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.